Well, it's a great joy and a privilege uh, to be able to be with you on this uh, launch Sunday, which is a massively uh, significant uh, moment in the life of this church. And uh, I've been part of the journey of uh, discussions around this uh, with Steph and uh, with Paul. And Steph, I just really want to honor you for the way that uh, you have led New Gen and the whole tribe experience uh, post uh, Pete's stroke. You've just been absolutely magnificent. And uh, people twice your age would struggle <laughs> with this, but you haven't. You've been so open-handed. It's been so God-glorifying, and I just really want to honor you, bro. I really respect you massively uh, through this whole process. But one of the pictures that God gave Steph to describe what today was really about uh, was the picture of giving your daughter over in marriage. And as I was just reflecting on today, I thought it's actually a very uh, helpful analogy uh, that kind of today is like a, a wedding ceremony where uh, you guys are getting married. And the one thing about a wedding ceremony is that when you get married, uh, nothing changes but everything changes. So sometimes when I'm a little bit cheeky and I'm speaking at a student event, what I'll uh, remind students is that actually uh, saying the word I do changes nothing. In fact, I, I actually get them to do that. Maybe we should do that this morning. So on the count of three, I want everybody to shout and say, I do. Okay, one, two, three. I do. Did anything change? Did you instantly become more mature and did, did, did the issues that you have in your life, did they miraculously disappear? And the reason why I do that with students is some people think like, well, I've got all of these issues and problems and I've got these like, you know, kind of porn habits and all of that. But when I say I do, when I get married, then everything's going to be fine. It's just going to solve the problem. And of course, that's complete nonsense. Just saying I do doesn't intrinsically change who you are uh, at all. But of course, those of us who have been married know that saying I do does change everything. It changes our life experience. And uh, today is kind of similar to that. If you've been tracking uh, with this uh, community for the last six months, you'll think, well, um, the next uh, six months aren't going to be very different from the last six months. So what has actually changed? And uh, what has changed is that as a community, you're kind of leaving the family home you leaving the comforts and security of the family home, and in the grace of God, you're standing on your own two feet and saying, we are uh, believing and trusting God uh, for a future uh, together. And so it's a massive thing. In one sense, nothing changes, but in another sense, everything has changed. And so as I was reflecting on what should I say, at these kind of moments, it's, it's very tempting to throw vision at you, to throw potential and uh, to, to, to uh, kind of uh, cast a vision uh, for what lies ahead. But as I've been thinking and praying, what I want to do in this moment is to reflect on what you're building on. Reflect on a foundation. You see, it's very easy for us to get really excited about the future, but not really think about what we're building on. And in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says it's like it's really dumb to build on sinking sand. And if you actually want to build something that lasts, you need to build on a solid rock. And so what I want to do uh, this morning at your first launch Sunday is I want to speak to you about what you're building on. So if you've got your Bibles, could you please turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. 
And this psalm is going to help focus us on what really matters. Foundations really matter. What we're building on really matters. And this psalm is going to help focus us in the right direction. Praise the Lord. How good is it to sing praises to our God? How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars and calls each of them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the skies with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young raven when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest wheat. He sends his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blasts? He sends the word and melts them. He stirs up the breeze and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this to no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Let's just pray together. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would lay a good foundation at the start of One Hope Church. And all God's people said? I want to look at the psalm under three headings. Firstly, one foundation. Secondly, one response. And finally, one hope. One foundation one response, one hope. Let's begin with the foundation. The beautiful thing about this psalm is what it does is it tells us about God. And John Piper says that the greatest need for Christians and the greatest need for churches is a vision of the greatness and grandeur of God. The foundational foundation is this, God himself. Is God himself good enough, amazing enough, awesome enough to be able to sustain us through everything? And the answer of the psalm is absolutely yes, he is. What the foundational foundation of this church is, is God himself. Remove God and this church doesn't exist. What the psalm does is, time after time, it reminds us of the incredible God we serve and what he does. There are 16 attributes that we see through the psalm, coupled together in, in, in kind of eight groupings. Let's briefly look at them. Firstly, it tells us that God is a God who builds and gathers. Notice verse 2. He builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the exiles from Israel. Why are we here this morning? We're here this morning because God gathers. Why are we here this morning? Because God builds. What is our hope this morning? Our hope is that God will continue to build and that God will continue to gather. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. 
We work hard. Yes, people have done so many uh, good things to get us to this point, but we must see God behind it all. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. God is the God who builds. God is the God who gathers, and this is the very foundation of this church. Not only does God build and gathers, but He is the God who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isn't this good news? God builds and God gathers, but God isn't building and gathering superheroes. God isn't in the business of gathering the most elite people who've got everything together and then uh, fulfilling his purposes through the great and mighty. That is not the work that God is doing. The work that God is doing is he's gathering the brokenhearted and he is binding up their wounds. This is so counterintuitive, is it not? The context of this very psalm was the people of God returning from Babylon to, uh, to rebuild the temple. Why were they in Babylon? Because they had oh, disobeyed God and disobeyed God, and God had sent prophets to warn them and prophets to warn them, and they ignored and ignored and ignored. And then God says, listen, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to smash your temple, and I'm going to stick you in Babylon. And they completely ignored it. They couldn't care less. And so God sent the Babylonians, and the temple was smashed. And it was brutal. The king of Israel at the time had his sons in front of him. The the Babylonians slaughtered his kids and then pulled out his eyeballs and frog-marched him to Babylon because they wanted the last thing that the king would have seen was his own kids being slaughtered. This is how brutal it was. And they end in Babylon. And you're sure God's doing this. I've had it with those people. I'm going to find somebody else. But God's discipline to us, God's discipline to us is never punitive. It is always redemptive. And God's plan was always to regather. And God's plan was always to rebuild. So maybe you hear this morning and you, you've seen uh, great men and women of faith being honored. And you just think, man, I am totally in the wrong place. Like, I can't even do a month of faithfulness and honoring people who've been married for 60 years and guys have been through strokes and are honoring God more in their disability than they were when everything was fine. I'm not like that at all. I really struggle to get to church and I haven't been to church for ages and, and, and my life's a mess and I'm aching. My spouse is unfaithful or my child's sick and it's hard. And I don't feel like I really belong here. And you'd be totally wrong because God is the God who heals. And God is the God who binds up the brokenhearted. See, the world will say to you that the way that you deal with real problems is you suppress it. You put it underground. You ignore it. But we know that that's not good, right? When we do that, we withdraw or we suppress and then we blow. The place to bring your problems is to God. God is the God who heals. God is the God who restores. And he doesn't want you just to survive. He wants you to encounter healing so that you are actually transformed in his presence. That you actually become something you could have never been without him at work. He is the God who heals and repairs. He is the God who designs and identifies. 
You see, the, the beautiful thing about being one hope and our vision for Stellenbosch, some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, Stephen, it's, it's great that you guys are all excited, but actually, I, have you been around Stellenbosch? Do you know the brokenness? Do you know the economic disparities? Do you, do you know the challenges that this town is facing? Do you really think you guys are going to make a difference? And, and, and left to ourselves, the answer to that is no, we're not going to make a difference. But our message today to anybody who wants to listen is that God is mighty and he is awesome. And he is big enough to be able to deal with our problems. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of stars and he calls them by name. This is God saying, I'm the God who's tender. I'm the God who builds and gathers. I heal. I, 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 I bind up the brokenhearted. God gets real intimate at the beginning of the psalm, and then he pushes out. And he says, if you just think I'm a little cuddly bear with no real power, you'd be absolutely wrong, because I'm the dude that determines the number of stars, and I call them each by name. This psalm echoes what Isaiah 40 says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He brings out the starry hosts one by one. He calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them are missing. Friends, the people who penned it didn't understand how awesome and how majestic the God we serve. In our little galaxy, the latest research tells us that there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of two trillion such galaxies. That's uh, uh, 12, with, um, uh, um, uh, 12 million million, so uh, 12 noughts on the end. So if you want to work out how many stars there are, the way to do that is to go 200 billion times 2 trillion, and he calls them by name. I don't know about you parents, I've got three kids, I struggle with three names. But God does, God does 200 billion times 2 trillion, and he calls them by name. I think he can handle the problems of Stellenbosch. Like, I, I could be overstating it, but I think he's got it. I think he's got it. I think he can handle it. I think he can handle South Africa, don't you? I think he can handle the problems. Like, if we connect with the God who calls 200 billion times 2 trillion stars, I think he's got it. The problem is we haven't got it. We haven't got him. We haven't got his greatness. We haven't got his grandeur. We're not believing him. We're not pressing into him. That's the problem. The problem isn't that God doesn't have enough power. And just in case we don't get it, he says the same thing again in verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. One of my favorite things to do in Stellenbosch is to go to the Donny Craven Rugby Stadium, uh, not to play against Stellenbosch, but uh, to go and watch rugby being played and to be on the main pavilion and to look out over the stadium to rugby fields that seem like they go on forever. There's like an eternity of rugby fields. For somebody like me who loves rugby, it's like, wow. Is this heaven? I think, I, 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 think, I think I'm close. And I've grown up in a family that loves rugby. And my dad says that uh, when you kind of analyze a rugby team, certainly in the 80s and 90s, you could uh, kind of uh, 
analyze a rugby team into two groups. He says you've got the piano players and you've got the piano movers. You've got the piano movers who are the big strong guys, the forwards, and then you've got the piano players, the guys that are make the magic happen. No prizes for guessing where my dad and myself played. We were the piano players, not the piano movers. But what we discover in this psalm is that God is both. God is both a piano player and a piano mover. Great is the Lord and mighty in power, piano mover. His understanding has no limits, piano player. God is mighty, he is awesome, but he is all-knowing. Which means that there's no problem that we're going to face into the future that God doesn't really know about. You see, we hit problems and we think, oh, well, 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 God isn't big enough to deal with that problem. Wrong. He's mighty in power. Or we hit a problem that we go, well, actually, the problem is so complicated. It's so nuanced. It's so technical. God, God doesn't really understand. And because he doesn't really understand, he can't really help. And because he can't really help, he doesn't really care. But that's just not true. The psalm tells us that God is mighty in power and that his understanding has no limits. The devil wants to get into your ear. Some of you are going through the most perplexing time in your life and you're sure God doesn't understand. But you are surely wrong because his understanding has no limits. The apostle Paul was perplexed, but he wasn't crushed. Because although he didn't understand why, he knew that he served a God who knew why. And for him, that was enough. This God is a God who nurtures and sustains through his word. We see that in verses 7 and 8. He's a God who protects and empowers. We see that in verse 13. He's a God who provides peace and provision. Notice verse 14. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. You know, one of the things that I really love about 25 years of uh, the New Gen story is it's a story... Uh, without controversy. There's no big bust up. There's no big fallout. There's no, there's none of that. It's, it's actually a story of peace. And you know where that comes from? It comes from God. God grants peace. And my prayer for one hope, Stellenbosch, is that God would grant peace to this community. That your future would be defined by men and women who love Jesus and are committed to his ways and are committed to building things God's way. But not only does God provide peace, but he provides. And he provides in an extravagant way. Because this verse tells us that God satisfies us, not just with wheat, which would have been enough, right? Like if you've been in Babylon, and you've been enslaved, and you finally get out of slavery, wheat would do, right? (laughs) If you're back in Israel and you've got some wheat, it's like, hey, this is our wheat. We're no longer enslaved. This this is cool. But they get back into Israel and God provides the finest wheat. And what we see here is that God is a God of extravagance. One of my concerns kind of growing up uh, as a pastor is that uh, my kids would kind of feel the lack of provision and they'd kind of grow up in a thing with a kind of a mindset like there's never enough, which I just thought like ridiculous. Like if mom and dad are serving God, what do you mean there isn't enough? And so one of my three children, all my three children are loud, but, but, but one of them is not only loud, but enjoys uh, people being loud back to him. So when he was uh, uh, 
young, what I used to do to try and instill this bigness of God is I'd go up to him and I would shout, we serve a God of abundance! And he would love it. He would, he would shout back, we serve a God of abundance! And we just have this like shouting match where we're shouting at each other that we serve a God of abundance. And that is what this verse tells us. The God that we serve is the God that can produce the finest wheat. And some of, you, some of you are thinking, like, what are you talking about? Are, are, are you like a prosperity preacher? No, 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 I'm a Bible teacher, and I teach what's in the Bible, and the Bible says that God provides the finest wheat, and God will do crazy things, right? God will provide in crazy ways, and I just want to encourage you, we serve a God of abundance, so let's not have small plans for Stellenbosch. Because normally we have small plans because we only plan what we can do. But when we start planning what God can do, the sky's the limit and beyond, right? We serve a God of abundance. We serve a God that can do incredible and majestic things. Finally, we see about God here in verses 15 through 20 that God is a God that commands and communicates. When things happen, it's because of God. It's because God's at work. It's, it, it's his snow. It's his wind. It's his molting. It's, he's at work in incredible ways. But more than that, he's a God who communicates. He wants to speak to us. He's not just into robotic obedience. He's into people who know him and love him and want to follow him. So first foundation, God. What's What's our foundation here today? God. What we're about? God. Who do we delight in? God. So firstly, one foundation, God. Secondly, one response. The response is shot through the whole psalm. We see it in verses 1, 7, 12, and 20. The response is this, is to praise God. To praise God. Why should we praise God? Well, because it's fitting. It's fitting in light of who He is, and it's fitting for us. Because actually, when we worship God, we do what we were created to do. Augustine said, I was restless until I found God. And then I found peace. C.S. Lewis says that when we put first things first, secondary things aren't suppressed, but they are enhanced. When we praise God, our life takes the proper shape. As I was praying over this morning, uh, over this message uh, over the last few days, Paul, I just felt like God wanted to speak to you about what your responsibility is. And I feel that God has placed in you a heart of worship that is who you are. And your responsibility as you're going into this next season is simply this, to continue to be the lead worshiper in this community. You are to worship God. You are then to call the eldership team to worship God, to praise God. You are to call this community to make much of God. And then you to call this community to be mobilized to make other worshipers of God. There are hundreds and thousands of people not worshiping Jesus this morning in Stellenbosch. They worship in the mountain. They worship in their comfort. They, they worship in their sports. We need more worshipers of Jesus in Stellenbosch. And he wants you to be a lead worshiper to praise the Lord. And as you praise him, as you call others to praise him, that's where the breakthrough is going to come. It's not the other stuff. It's delighting in God. It is making much of him. It's allowing that to flow. It's not tapering it down. It's allowing that 
heart that he's given you to burst forth and call others to do that. One foundation, one response, and finally one hope, one hope. This psalm doesn't just help us see God clearly, but it also helps us see what God savors. Notice verses 10 and 11. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Having painted a glorious picture of God, the psalmist then helps us see what God really likes, what he really enjoys. And he does that by means of a contrast. He first tells us what God doesn't like, and then he tells us what God does like. And when you read it at first, it can be a little bit confusing. His pleasure is not in the strength of a horse, nor his delight in the legs of a warrior. And you're going like, I don't get it, God. You made the horse. You made man. What's what's the problem with the strength of a horse? What's the problem with the ripped warrior? What's wrong with that? Why don't you like them? And, And God's point isn't that he doesn't like his creation, but rather his point is that in the day of battle, people end up putting their hope in the strength of the horse and in the strength of a warrior. Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord. John Piper puts it like this, God is not displeased with the horse's strength or human legs. His displeasure is with those who hope in their horse and their legs. He is displeased with people who put their hope in missiles or makeup, in tanks or tans, in bombs or bodybuilding. God takes no pleasure in corporate efficiency or balanced budgets or eloquence or artistic excellence or legal process when these things are the treasures in which we hope or the achievements in which we boast. So what does God delight in then? Well, we're told... In verse 11, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. The fear here isn't uh, a terror. It's, it's, it's a reverent awe. It's what Piper calls a holy trembling. It's a, it's a being overwhelmed with who God is. We see this throughout the Bible, whether it's Moses or Isaiah or the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration or John on the island of Patmos, it's been utterly overwhelmed and undone by God and yet completely exhilarated at the same time. His delight is in those that just go, wow, God, you're amazing. His delight, what he likes, what is God like? You know, you meet a famous person, you get to know them, it's like, what are they like? God likes people who are in a reverent awe of him who are into happy trembling. Wow, God, you're majestic. You're incredible. And who put their hope in his unfailing love. Friends, can I be a little bit of a party pooper? Your name is One Hope. 
but there is one hope. And the one hope is not one hope. The one hope is God's unfailing love. If you are so excited because it's like, yeah, it's launch Sunday. Yay, one hope. And we're going to do this. And, and your hope is one hope. We're going to be pastoring you in six months time or two years time or 10 years time. And you're going to be disillusioned with Christianity. And you're going to be disillusioned with Christianity because you made the church your hope instead of God your hope. And if you make this church your hope, you are going to set yourself up for being disillusioned. There is one hope, and the one hope isn't one hope. The one hope is His unfailing love. God delights in those who are in awe of Him and who hope in His unfailing love. Friends, what is your hope this morning? Is your hope one hope? Is your hope your spouse? Is your hope your career? Is your hope your children? Friends, only God can carry the weight of the freight of your life. Only God can handle you in all your complexities and confusions. And God is incredibly kind to us, right? Because he could say he delights in those who are in reverent awe of him who hope in his love, right? That would be enough. Who hope in his love. That would be good enough, right? God's love's amazing, right? Who hope in his love. But he's super kind to us. Because what does he say? Who hope in his unfailing love. Clue phone. Everything else is failing. There's only one thing that never fails. And that is the love of God. And when this psalmist wrote it, he's going, wow, this is awesome. He had no clue, right? He had no clue how good the unfailing love of God was. Because when he wrote this, he didn't know about Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. Saying, Father, seriously, if there is any way, can you take this cup from me? If there's any way, please, can you take the cup, the cup representing the wrath of God. Can you take this cup from me? But not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus takes the cup. And he drinks the cup. And he is whipped and beaten, betrayed, mocked. They spit on him. They blindfold him. They punch him and say, hey, prophet, tell us who, who punched you. They nail him to the cross. While he is in agony on the cross, there are people mocking him, shouting at him. <laughs> he saves others, but he can't save himself. The stupid idiot who thought he was the savior. Look, he's hanging on the cross. He can't even save himself. But of course, the mockery was divine irony. Because he couldn't both save us, right? And save himself. Either he saves himself and sacrifices us. Or he must sacrifice himself in order to save and rescue us. And he sacrifices himself. He hangs on the tree. He becomes our sin bearer. And from the cross he shouts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Slaba, Sabathini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he crying that? Because he was being forsaken. Why was he being forsaken? Because he's our sin bearer. And the father must turn his face away. He is forsaken. 
so that you and I will never be forsaken. In a moment, we're going to break bread. And when we break bread, we get to drink the cup of salvation. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drank the cup of the wrath of the Father. Friends, will you trust in his unfailing love? One hope. Listen to the word of the Lord from Psalm 33. No king is saved by the sides of his army. Well, let's rewrite this for today. No pastor is saved by the size of his congregation. No life group leader escapes by his strength. A bank balance is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, the reverend fraud or the happy trembling, who hope in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. We trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you, one hope, the only hope, is his unfailing love. One hope, have one hope, the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to come before you, and Lord, we just want to acknowledge at moments like this we can be so caught up with our own ambitions and our own strengths. And we just want to stop and we just want to say, Lord, today belongs to you. Unless the Lord builds a house, the labor is laboring vain. If you're not the headline and the main event of this church, we are ripping off Stellenbosch in a terrible way. But we're not, Lord. We're here for you. We're here to make much of you. We're here to delight in you. We're here to declare you as the only foundation. We're here to declare that our only response is to worship you and to exalt you and to make much of you. And we're here to declare today that the one hope isn't us. The one hope is you. And the one hope is your unfailing love. And Lord, we thank you for your incredible sacrifice for us. We thank you that you promised that never will you leave us and never will you forsake us. Lord, we thank you that you were forsaken so that we never would be. And even when we're going through our darkest hour and we're utterly perplexed and we don't understand anything, what we do know is that you are faithful and that your love is unfailing. And Lord, I pray that that would be the very foundation and the very hope of this community, that they would trumpet out goodness and greatness and grandeur of God and the extravagant, incredible, unfailing love of King Jesus. I'm going to hand over to Paul. He's going to lead us in breaking of bread.